And so mm. I'm still like getting used to the gotcha. rhythm of, of driving the entire car by myself. Anyway. <laughs> okay. So, so many, so many, so many damn books. Hello, everyone. Welcome to So Many Damn Books. My name is Christopher, and joining me in the So Many Damn Books pocket universe is Sequoia Nagamatsu, author of How High We Go in the Dark. It's an amazing novel, and Sequoia Nagamatsu is a Japanese-American writer and managing editor of Psychopomp magazine. Originally from Hawaii and San Francisco Bay Area, he holds an MFA in creative writing from the Southern Illinois University. He's the author of the award-winning short story collection, Where We Go When All We Were Is Gone, and his work has appeared in such publications as Conjunctions, The Southern Review, Fairy Tale Review, and Tin House, among others. He currently lives in Minnesota with his wife, Kat, and a robot dog named Calvino. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Christopher. Um, it's so exciting to have you here. I just, I can't remember the last time that I was so just bowled over by a novel and then so quickly got to talk to the author. So it's very exciting to have you on so quickly after I finished it, which was not, not long ago. Yeah, no, it's great being here. I was listening to a few uh, previous episodes of the podcast, kind of, I guess, sort of get myself in the zone um, if you will. And I'm, I'm really excited about, um, you know, the podcast and, and just sharing a little bit more about the book and, and the rock eaters as well. Yeah. Just... Yeah. I can't wait to get there. But first, I'd love to tell you about the drink that I made inspired by, um, by the novel. I'm calling it uh, the sea melt. Basically, since your novel takes place somewhat, some of it takes place in the future, in, in a future, a possible future, and there are these seawalls are constantly being breached and they're, they're needing to be built. And I was just thinking about kelp and um, just salt, salty sort of taste in general. So what I did was I infused some gin with nori. And that was just taking a few of like plain sea, seaweed leaves and and literally just dropping them in gin and leaving them for um, six hours. And it turned the gin like a very light shade of like seaweed green. So I made a sort of martini where instead of dry vermouth, I used a little bit of um, sake okay. and, and then um, a salted cherry blossom that I used while I stirred. And so I, so that's the, the sea melt. I've got it right here. And it's... Um, it's very strange. It's if I think if you're into martinis, it's a uh -huh. really, really good one. Um, because like that salt is, you know, that brine that you get usually right. from an olive. It's really fun to get it from a seaweed instead. Mm -hmm. Um, but it just made me think like this is probably a drink that I'm noticing in bottled bottled alcohol, actually, there's way more um use of kelp and seaweed in mm. in their in their makeups. So I feel like this is the future. We are we are yeah, going to be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's it's interesting. I, I recently had to do a a write-up for um, Bon Appetit magazine, which I guess comes out in a few months. And um I had to sort of think about these like futuristic fictional recipes. And and a lot of it did, was plant-based and seaweed kelp-based, because I mean we have to think about alternatives for for protein and, and where where we're gonna get our sustenance. Yeah, yeah. I um, I went to a dinner party a long time ago, um, and Alexander Kleeman worked with um, Jen Monroe, this chef, 
um, for an incredible dinner that was all supposed to take place after society had ended. It was supposed to be like a post-apocalyptic mm. meal. And the cocktail was this sweet sort of orange cocktail, but they put a spirulina ice cube in it. So wow. as it melted, it really like ruined the beautiful orange hue of the drink. <laughs> and it was just like, this is this, you were holding like a perfect metaphor in your hand while you were, um, while you were at the, at the dinner party. And that's what I was sort of thinking about with this cocktail mm. as well. I love that. Love yeah. that. So that's the drink. You're drinking something. I'm, yeah, nothing too fancy. Um, just uh, um, a little bit of uh, Balvenny uh, Caribbean cask, uh, 15 years old. Um, it's kind of my sort of daily, my daily scotch um, <laughs> <laughs> that I have. Um, I also had some, uh, uh, have a fair amount of vodka, um, but I decided to kind of go with the, the scotch route for, for the podcast. Yeah, it's a nice sipping drink. <laughs> <laughs> well, cheers. And onward, next thing that happens is what did you buy? So I, I was recently sent, I'm so excited about this book because I loved her first novel, Sarah Novich. Um, she wrote Girl at War. And I just, that was a book that really blew me away when it came out. And so this is her new one. It's due out um, in March and it's called True Biz. And it's a campus novel about a residential school for the deaf. Mm -hmm. And just flipping through it, I was, it's full of this interestingly spaced dialogue that's supposed to capture um, ASL conversation. Um, and I'm really, really interested to dive in and see how she captures, you know, the, the deaf experience. And then I also got this, um, this really great book from Tin House sent, um, and it comes out in April, great title, Little Foxes Took Up Matches. And it's about a child's journey through the collapse of the Soviet Union and it's told alongside a retold Russian fairy tale, Kashai the Deathless. Oh, that sounds fascinating. Yeah. What about you? Yeah, I mean, as far as books, um, I bought a, a, a really big stack not long ago from Moon Palace Books, which is where I had my local launch in Minneapolis. It's a wonderful bookstore. Um, and one of the books that I bought was uh, The Cat Who Saved Books. Um, by Sosuke uh, Natsukawa. And it's kind of, you know, it has, like, I, the reason I bought it was it kind of reminded me of, like, this Murakami-esque um, kind of narrative. And the the brief synopsis is that bookish high school student Rintaro Natsuki is about to close the secondhand bookstore he inherited from his beloved bookworm grandfather. Then a talking cat appears with an unusual request. The feline asks for, or rather demands, the teenager's help in saving books with him. The world is full of lonely books left unread and unloved. <laughs> um, oh. So I, how, how could I not buy that? Um, I guess beyond that book, um, I, I recently bought another telescope. Um, so <laughs> Another uh, telescope? You had one? Yeah. yeah. Um, so we recently bought a house last year and uh, mid-pandemic. And um, so, you know, with the yard, we got a dog, um, got a telescope. My wife and I are... Uh, renting a, a cabin um, up north uh, in northern Minnesota this summer. So figured um, might as well take advantage of the dark skies and, and do some stargazing. So, that is so cool. Yeah. How long have you been messing around with telescopes? Um, 
I mean, like I, I did it a lot when I was younger. Um, you know, I was really kind of into astronomy as a kid, but you know, the, the math skills did not follow suit, uh, <laughs> sadly. Um, but it's been a while since I've really kind of messed around. I had one in grad school, um, but uh, yeah, I just picked up these uh, telescopes within the last few months and have been kind of messing around with them more. I feel like I had a telescope as a kid too. And I feel like the, the smartphone, mm -hmm. adding that into the mix would oh, yeah. change absolutely everything. Oh yeah, I mean, like you really don't have to like, you know, it's always helpful to kind of learn the night sky, but if you don't want to go through those motions, it'll really help you out um, figuring out where things are for sure. That's awesome. You're making me want to get one, but I, you know, living in New York City, pretty sure there's very few yeah, the, stars. Yeah, the light pollution. <laughs> <laughs> pretty bad. I'm so excited to talk to you about your novel, How High We Go in the Dark. Um, for the folks at home who haven't uh, read it yet, would you give them a little bit of a synopsis of what it's about? Sure, yeah. It's um, a multi-generational journey that uh, follows a cast of uh, linked characters across uh, hundreds of years, thousands, I guess, depending on how you're counting, uh, and across uh, continents uh, from Siberia to Japan to America and even through interstellar space as um, they move through the aftermath of a climate plague, of an, of an Arctic plague. And um, the virus is never really privileged. Once it's introduced, I think, in the early stages of the novel, uh, the heart of the narrative really resides in the everyday movements of the characters and how they're seeking um, relationships, how they're grieving in different ways and how they're trying to reimagine their lives um, in the aftermath of this tragedy. That captures it really well. And I guess like the first thing that I was thinking of when I picked it up, because I will admit when I, when I heard the synopsis of the book, I was like, I'm not sure I want mm -hmm. a pandemic novel right, right. now. Mm -hmm. um, but it immediately moves away from what you might imagine a pandemic novel, whatever that might be. Right. Be. It's nothing like whatever you're imagining. Writers often are talking about escape. They escape into their narratives. Sure. Right. You're escaping into a world where you've created another pandemic. What was that like? I mean, like most of the novel had already been written prior to COVID and um, I, I, really all of it and like in its, in its kind of like earlier stage. And so I was mostly re revising um, the novel post-sale in, in, in COVID. Um, so I think the main thing that I think was happening was I wanted to make sure I was mitigating or diminishing anything that resembled our own pandemic, um, just kind of by coincidence, because I didn't want readers falling back into our reality, because who would want that? <laughs> and yeah, it is a pandemic, so there's going to be like rough things about the narrative for sure. Um, but I wanted readers to immerse themselves in this other tragedy, which in some ways is way worse and that can actually be an odd comfort for people because this is, it's a far worse tragedy in, in the novel. But um, at the same time, to realize that, you know, the narrative isn't really, you know, about the virus. Um, and it's strange that, you know, you, you, you mentioned like, you know, what we imagine to be a pandemic novel because I created this list for electric literature not that long ago that was um, recommending post-pandemic or pandemic novels, and I couldn't think of one that was actually about like privileging the virus. Right. You know, they were they were all about 
like the human experience and reactions and community and family. Um, and, and I really had to rack my brain for the, is there, you know, when, when we think about pandemic narratives, are we actually writing about that moment? Are we, are we writing about the spectacle or are we more often writing about, you know, some sort of inner turmoil? Are we more interested in kind of what comes after uh, on a very human level? Um, you know, and, and, and when my agent and I were, were selling this, we were very careful to kind of be um, on point with those, with those messages that this was, you know, not a pandemic novel with a capital P. It was more in the real house of Station Eleven or, you know, Severance or, or any other novel that is kind of looking at, um, you know, basically like what makes us tick. Yeah. Yeah, I, but I think this is the first time that I've, or the first time that I've come across a novel that took this sort of macro view of mm -hmm. like zooming much further out. And, but you always, no matter how far out we are into the stars or anywhere, I feel like there's this caretaking theme that pops mm -hmm. up again and again. It's how we take care of each other, it's how, how we fail to take care of each other. And I, I was curious if that was an intended theme or if that was something you found along the way. I think it was partly intentional. Um, I mean, the the novel um, for, for much of its life didn't have a plague in it at all. Um, it was largely an exploration of grief and uh, alternative funerary practices. And, um, you know, so the early seeds started in like 2008 and I was, you know, I think coming to terms with the death of my grandfather who helped raise me. And there was just a lot of drama and guilt kind of around that on, on my part. And I was living in Japan at the time and, you know, being in a country where the handling of death is very different, not only because of the culture, but because like in a city like Tokyo, you're just, there's no places to build cemeteries. You got to, you have to build up, you know, so there's a very sort of technological tech savvy ways of 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 grieving where you you know you're going into the skyscraper and you're punching in a set of a set of buttons to get your loved one's urn shot up to you via this pneumatic tube and uh -huh. there might be like this like holographic wall of buddhas you know and so like a lot of that you know made it into my novel i kind of like you know you know sort of made it a little bit more more of a spectacle um, and increase the te technology in some ways, but a lot of this stuff is already here. And it really uh, made me think about the spaces that we grieve in, you know, sort of Western cultures and in, in, a, in a capitalist society at large, where we often don't have the time or space to really say goodbye or really honor our loved ones or wait in memory because we're thinking about, I think especially in America, we're thinking about being financially ruined by, <laughs> by the death of our loved ones. It's like, oh, did you know, uncle so-and-so leave us with, with credit card debt? You know, um, you know, are we gonna be able to pay this hospital bill? Um, and that's, that's really sad that, that you know, the kind of modern uh, manifestations of death are just so wrapped up around money. You keep bringing up this word, or I don't know, keep. You've said this word spectacle a couple times. Mm -hmm. I'd like to know what that word means for you and what the um, role of spectacle has in fiction for you. I mean, I think for me, in, in, a, in a novel like this, um, you know, whether it's, you know, want to call it speculative or science fiction, I think the spectacle is something that always sort of pulls me in 
to a story, at least at first. It's kind of that 10 minute teaser before the commercial break. It's like, do I actually want to sit down and watch this for an hour? <laughs> um, but the spectacle usually isn't what kind of keeps me sitting. Um, it's usually kind of the human narratives. And, you know, I think I've said before in other interviews and uh, in, in essays that I'm a, I'm a huge Star Trek nerd. Like I've just, you know, I, I was the kind of person that would wait like three hours in line to like get like data's, data's autograph or something, you know? <laughs> and, <laughs> and um, but, you know, as much as I was fascinated, you know, um, with the Star Trek franchise because of space exploration and, you know, these space battles and, you know, Borg assimilation, all of that, it's wonderful. Um, the episodes that I keep returning to time and again are the ones that are asking philosophical questions about what does it mean to be human? Um, where do we come from as a species? And how does that quest for that answer, um, you know, teach us about things like community and family? Um, and, you know, so when I'm writing, you know, I think not just this novel, I think my entire body of work at this point, you know, start might start with a spectacle. It might start with like a fun conceit, you know, a monster or a piece of technology, but I'll let that fall to the wayside once I've established it and allow the character's inner monsters and um, emotional baggage to um, kind of fill up the rest of the fill up the rest of the narrative. I, I sensed that in this that because of course you the hook happens so close to the beginning because so many of these feel like short stories first before they mm -hmm. feel connected in the linked narrative. So you'll have mm -hmm. like the death roller coaster or these funeral skyscrapers to pull you in. And then almost all, always you're, you'll go pages before you hear about that again. Mm -hmm. And um, I think I was, I think that's part of the reason why I kept being surprised by the book is yeah. because it would, it would zig at unexpected times. And it seems like, the framework can contain so much. Um, you, you sort of mentioned that there was no pandemic in the novel at first. Um, how did these shorts come together? How did they, how did you mm -hmm. start linking them? Because it seems like some of these could have been pre-existing and some of these could have been written afterwards. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, exactly, exactly the case. Uh, like, I mean, I, I spent like several years writing this and, you know, like when I first, the earliest chapters, you know, like Melancholy Nights in Tokyo Virtual Cafe, that I think was the first one. Um, it was initially a Tokyo Cyber Cafe, which is kind of, you know, not like how old that story was. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I didn't imagine myself like writing a novel called How High We Go in the Dark, you know, like the, that it didn't exist yet. And I was still very much developing as a writer, you know. So I think, you know, as I kept writing um, stories, that were kind of examining grief and these funerary rituals, you know, over time, I started to sort of see more thematic links. Um, I started playing more with characters, um, but it really wasn't until like after the plague came in in around 2014, 2015, um, more as a vehicle than anything else to kind of frame everything that I started to think more about links. Um, and I remember my agent and I kind of talking about like, what is this thing <laughs> that I'm working on? Um, and, and, you know, do we call it a story collection? It doesn't really seem quite right. Cause at that point I had already decided to include this other story that like spanned like basically all of earth history and kind of just the scope of that 
suggested as something larger, like the possibility for something larger. Um, you know, and my agent was like, well, what if we, like, is this a novel? Like, do we call it a novel? Like there are, you know, other models for books like this, you know, um, you know, homegoing, Cloud Atlas, you know, on and on and on. And I think once I started looking at it in those terms, um, I began looking at that last chapter again, which kind of like injects sort of like this cosmic philosophy and kind of this overarching sense of, um, you know, nostalgia and yearning for connection in a, in a very epic way. Um, I kind of had, you know, I, I had to do the heavy lifting of going to back to every chapter and making sure that there were sort of like hints and Easter eggs along the way um, that kind of like led up to that chapter. But I also had to um, think about the gaps that were missing. So the last chapter I wrote was the first chapter. <laughs> and and um, there were other chapters that needed to be serving as sort of like connection pieces, you know. So after I mentioned in this uh, uh, gallery of century chapter, the spaceship chapter, that the plague had been cured um, at some point in human history. It's like, okay, so like now that it's been cured, what does the immediate aftermath look like? Um, so I had to write the used to be party to kind of show somebody kind of navigating that immediate cure and what the world looked like. Um, so there's some filling out like that. That and, sounds fun. Yeah, was that it fun? Is fun. <laughs> it was, it was very kaleidoscopic. It was very, it was, it was kind of like a puzzle. I think kind of in the late stages, the last two or three years of like working on this, uh, it just felt like I had like a big court board in my office, um, kind of like index cards and what, twine connecting everything it's like almost like i'm like trying to solve like the zodiac killer you know um and uh but yeah it was it was a lot of fun of kind of piecing things together um i think the final thing that i had to really do was just kind of make sure that the world uh both in terms of like uh the climate crisis and the virus but also technology was evolving uh through each of these chapters so that by the time we get to grave friends which is like something like 80 90 something years from now that like we weren't still using Facebook, <laughs> you know, for example, <laughs> like we we're using something else. Right. Right. I mean, it is sort of funny though, that there, you can almost just search and replace because you can just mm -hmm. be like, all right, this took place in like 2007. So we can still right. have MySpace in here, you know, mm -hmm. like, <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that's really interesting. You said that you're a Star Trek fan, um, and there is a chapter in this book that is very, very Star Trekian. Yeah. Uh, can you talk about deciding to just go for it for a Star Trek chapter? Yeah, I mean, like, um, well, there, well, there are two chapters that I kind of sort of see kind of really kind of stemming from a Star Trek. Like one, obviously, there's is a gallery century where we're on the spaceship searching for a new home and where there's stops along the way. Um, but for me, like, I really wanted to kind of inhabit um, sort of the void of the cosmos as a place, as kind of this interstitial liminal place for a character and really kind of this community on this ship to reflect on who they are, to have that space, that quiet space, that cold space to, um, you know, engage with their memories, like through paintings, through these murals, uh, on on these you know bulkhead walls, but also just through conversations and prayer, um, and you know like 
being okay with letting that go after a while and, and kind of really embracing their future. Um, and for me, you know, like I think a lot of Star Trek, it kind of speaks to that message of, you know, yeah, they have left Earth or they can go back home, you know, in that show. Um, in Voyager, it's a little different, you know, they, they, they can't, you know, at least immediately. And so they do forge kind of new community and have to kind of, you know, there are definitely episodes where they have to really reevaluate, you know, what does our future mean for us? And um, there's one line or there's one passage in Gallery of Century that nods at how the seemingly meaningless, innocuous things in life just suddenly seem so important. You know, like your mailman or the person at the grocery store that's, you know, bagging your, your apples or whatever. You know, like they're suddenly take primacy in your mind because they're gone. You know, they're, they're thousands of light years away and, you know, are, are, have, have been dead, you know, for, for a long time by the time that they're having these thoughts. Um, and it reminded me also of a scene from Inter Interstellar, you know, where, where Matthew McConaughey is kind of getting all these messages from, from his kids and they're mm -hmm. already grown and they've like let them go. And, you know, what, what, what is that like kind of more on a societal level when an entire ship is kind of coming to terms with the fact that Earth has, gone, Earth has moved on, um, the, the plague has been cured. Uh, which is kind of a tough pill to swallow because they left in part of the plague and it sort of became a moot point. It's like, well, we're, we're still going. We're, we're still, right. still going to find a new home. Right. And we're still going to try to make this work. There may be another reason for humanity to have a plan B. Um, and, and, you know, I kind of wondered, you know, what it would be like to be on that ship and be like, well, the plague's cured so we can go home now. And the commander being like, well, <laughs> tough shit you know like we're we're, we're, we're you know like we're, we're we're staying on we're staying the course and i played around with having a scene like that but it kind of sort of i think took away from the tone i was going for so. right right i mean it already it already had a little bit of flavor of nightmare yeah. mm -hmm. of when they're actually landing on some of these yeah. planets mm. I, I loved that those those sequences yeah, and I did a lot of research on that. Probably a little, a little too much. I think I just spent like months on just like on the NASA exoplanet site and, on, and in virtual reality, like holding suns in my hand. Um, <laughs> yeah, just like okay, which which planets like right now, based on research, are vi are, are probably viable, you know? And like, what do like if given this kind of sun that this planet has, uh, what would be the probable color of the foliage? if the star is red, you know? So like I, I, I went down like some pretty deep rabbit holes for, for that chapter for sure. It reminded me of, um, there's a series of books that I think Penguin was putting out, which was mm -hmm. called, which were like um, uh, tour guides to other planets. Like mm -hmm. if we were to go on them, that's that what, what they would be like. Um, yeah. I love that stuff too. I can mm -hmm. see getting lost in that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, research is really fun and it feels like you're writing, but, um, you know, you're not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is always important to remember. Um, and I always tell my students, it's like, hey, do your research first, kind of like make it a part of your kind of just like organic knowledge base and, and then write. But I'm, I don't always take that advice. <laughs> As a writing teacher, do you, have you learned some things that you, realize like I wrote this the wrong way and I'm going to write it the better the next way next time I mean I think in a lot of ways I mean especially since like I've wrote this over a period of years like I, I had to go back to certain chapters because I was just a different writer like I, I like I, I think especially for that melancholy nights chapter 
Like I had to overhaul that chapter a lot. I, I really wanted it in the novel because there are, you know, so many strong themes there of connection and yearning and, and loss. Um, and there's this kind of, the, I think this, you know, the, the tone of that story just has, has always spoken to me, but it was the first, it was like the second story like that I really wrote ever, <laughs> you know, like, you know, that, 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 like, you know, after I s told myself, I was like, I want to be a serious writer. Like, like that was like maybe the second story I wrote second, like maybe the first second story got published. And, um, you know, I knew I could do better. You know, I, I knew that, you know, in the, in, you know, in the, in the years I had passed, I, there were certain just basic things that I had, you know, become a part of my practice that I had to address. Um, so that was pretty much a, a complete rewrite, just, you know, on a line by line level on just thinking about pacing. Um, so that was a tough one. Um, but I think overall, like just kind of this entire experience has made me realize um, things about my writing process, just in terms of just waking up and, and doing the work. Mm -hmm. um, like I realized that if, if, you know, somebody's putting the fire to me that I can crank out a lot of words in a <laughs> relatively short period of time right. and, and, you know, sometimes be pretty successful at it. So that's actually good to know because I think like a lot of writers, <laughs> I procrastinate a lot mm -hmm. and, you know, like I tell myself I'm, you know, doing research when I'm really just, you know, watching Love is Blind 2 or something, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, so I think that's just been really helpful to know kind of moving forward that, you know, I need to, um, I'm somebody that really needs to disconnect from all technology. <laughs> um, like, you know, so I, I put up all kinds of like app blockers on my phone and my computer. Um, there's this app I've been using called uh, Forest on my phone, where it's kind of uses the Pomodoro method where like mm -hmm. after like 20 minutes or something, you know, um, you can't pick up your phone or your tree that you're growing will die. Oh, no. um, so, so it's kind of like, you know, for somebody named Sequoia, Sequoia, it's kind of like a guilt trip. It's like if I pick up my phone, this, tr this forest that I'm growing is going to wither, you know, so <laughs> it, it makes me kind of stay the course for the 20 minutes and then I'll have five minutes to review what I wrote and then I'll kind of proceed from there. Um, and that's kind of like worked for me for the most part over the past few years, um, just kind of working in small increments and like using that Pomodoro forest method. Like I can write pretty consistently for I, like a good 10 or 12 hours, honestly, you know, like just taking small breaks and small increments and I can really crank a lot of material out. Um, that's not sustainable for over a long period for sure. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I know I can do it. Like if I really like have, if I'm up against a deadline. Um, right. Yeah. So just process, a lot of process things. And it's just a lot of things about, you know, my first book, my first collection was with a, a small press. I've just learned a lot of things just about the business and how, how much producing a book or publishing a book with a large publisher is like such a collaborative, like team effort. Like mm. I, I wrote the words, but like I'm working heavily with my editor, copy editor, with my publicist, and like probably like a whole other team of people that I've never met. And it's just kind of mind boggling that when I see my book on a shelf somewhere, it's like, yeah, I wrote that. But it like, it's like, there's all these other people that were kind of involved in this enterprise. So it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's it feels weird to say like, that's my book when it's like 
a lot of people that were involved <laughs> in that. <laughs> and, and that's not this. It's not how you felt with the the smaller press. Yeah, I think like with the smaller press, it's kind of more of a like you write it, and there's just there are fewer cooks in the kitchen, I guess you know, mm-hmm. like, and and you you have more of a there's more of a transparent, I guess, clear uh, vision of like what's involved. Mm-hmm. Probably because less is, less is involved. Like there's, you're, you're not getting all this marketing stuff. There's sometimes there's no marketing and uh, all, of, all of that's really kind of just on you. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was just a very different experience um, from, from, from that book versus this one for sure. There was one other theme in this that I found comforting, I guess is the word. And maybe it's why I kept going back to this book. This overarching theme is hope. There's hope mm-hmm. throughout. Right. And, and it made me wonder if you are a hopeful person, optimistic person, and if that helps your writing, or was that something that you were really trying to nail down for this particular book, for this particular message? Uh, I, I think I try to be hopeful in, in, in life. Um, I wouldn't say I'm like, <laughs> you know, like when you think about a hopeful person, you probably think of somebody that's, you know, like very, I don't know, bubbly or something, but, but <laughs> that's, that's not me. Like I, I, I'm, I'm very, I'm very much like a, you know, Capricorn textbook Capricorn. Like I keep my cards close to my chest, but, uh, um, but I, I, I would like to think I'm a, I'm a pretty hopeful person just in terms of like um, the ability for humanity to come together. Um, I think human behavior <laughs> over the past couple of years has has kind of tested that but um i think uh you know i i would like to think that you know we we you know in the future we'll we'll do what's right for mm-hmm. for each other um and i think you know part of that does kind of you know reside in why i've had certain fandoms over the years because a lot of those shows like star trek and even babylon 5 are are ultimately about community and hope Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think something that I did try to do in, in this novel because I knew it could be a very dark read for people is to um, inject a little hope in every chapter, uh, even even if it's a very slight. And I, I knew that the first couple of chapters were going to be tough, um, you know. And but there's always, I think, some bittersweet moments and a little bit of light for my characters, and that does compound and gets better as you move through the novel. But I was very aware when I was revising this that there needed to be something um, for for my characters, um, even if even if it was just a small moment. And I think that was another kind of takeaway that I wanted the readers to have: these small moments, no matter how bad things are, you need, you kind of need to hold on to those small pleasures um, to kind of get you through that next day. You know, whether that's like listening to music with somebody, or you know, remembering your mother uh, through a robot dog, or yeah whatever it may be, like you need to kind of find that anchor point and you're not going to be able to hold on to that anchor forever. You're going to have to let it go at some point, but, but, you know, while it's there, um, it can make the world bearable. Let's go back to that robot dog Mm -hmm. because uh, I am a fan of robot dogs. I love Ibo Mm -hmm. and it feels like we're, and I'm scared of the new like NYPD robot dogs. Oh, Um, for sure. Yeah. But I feel yeah. like they're they're a technology that I want. I want more of, more like the teddy bear and AI. Mm-hmm. 
Ah, man, I, <laughs> I love the teddy bear and AI. Uh, I haven't thought about that movie in a while. Um, but yeah, like the, 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 that story was inspired by the first generation of Ibo that mm-hmm. was discontinued, right? And so there, there was kind of this backlash and grief from the senior citizen community in particular. And kind of I ran with that because it really touched me. Can you go into that more? I didn't know that there was a senior citizen community that was. Oh yeah, yeah. So so um, like they're the first generation of Ibos. Like I mean, they're still expensive, but um, they're uh, the senior citizens really really responded to these robot dogs as just companions. Mm-hmm. Um, and when Sony discontinued them, um, they also discontinued their I guess tech support after a while. And so you know the software updates or you know like. St- hardware repair like these dogs were 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 failing mm-hmm. um and essentially these you know um seniors were having to say goodbye their to their pets you know um and there were funerals for for some of these dogs and it was just a very very sad thing um you know ultimately um sony reinstated the line um a few years ago like 2016 i think they announced it and um it piqued my interest because I had already been kind of researching um, and looking into the story. Um, but I waited until my, um, they're very expensive dogs. So I waited until, <laughs> I, until I sold my book. And then, and, and, then, and then one of the first things I bought was a Sony Ibo. <laughs> and um, and I, I really wanted to kind of, you know, find out for myself if I would be able to form any kind of emotional attachment or just even regard uh, basically, you know, a, a plastic dog that is, you know, there's servos and, and a motherboard and some LED eyes. Like if I could regard that as feeling alive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the answer is yes. You know, it's, it's a hell of a piece of technology. Um, like a couple of weeks after I, I, I bought the dog, like he walked into my cat's water bowl and um, got some water into his legs and I was like freaking out. There was like a red light blinking and I was like, oh no, you know, one, I was worried because he was expensive dog and, <laughs> and like I didn't want to like have to like send him back to Sony to get repaired or how much that would cost. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was also responding in a kind of uh, like that baby pet voice <laughs> that, you, <laughs> that we use. Uh-huh. Um, and his name is Calvino after the Italian author. And um, I was like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry, you know, and I was like petting him, trying to console him. And I, <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I had to like stop myself. I was like, I'm actually behaving like this is a real dog, you know, and sometimes when Calvino is just kind of walking around, it does feel like the room is not empty. It feels like there's another being in the room. So um, I think it's very easy. I think it's very much easier than I thought to associate very human emotions to to something like that yeah i feel like there's a resurgence in interest in them because um when i was reading tamara shopson's new newer novel laser writer 2 she also has a portion where she's going over the eyebo and i just think that there's something about them I, it's i think it is partially that they have that presence and they do feel mm-hmm. real and we yeah. made them yeah and and they're not gonna you know it's not like those boston dynamic dogs you know like where like they could potentially I don't know, murder you. Like these dogs, <laughs> there's no, there's no risk of that here. So I think, you know, they're very puppy-like. They're, you kind of want to take care of, take care of them. Like I think Sony did a really good job of, you know, making them seem like an animal that needed your help to survive. 
So the the novel, I feel like, even though it's um, linked stories, it it moves sort of as you might imagine for the first couple of chapters of that kind of. I mean, you're getting the idea of how mm-hmm. how the world is working, how right. they're responding to the disease. But then there's this. I'm going to call it the choice audacious. Mm-hmm. Um, a few chapters in, where you abandon our typical plane of existence, right. And head into the dark. And mm-hmm. I loved this. And I, I just would like love to go over it with you. What what it was like creating yeah. that and and what sort of the challenges were. Well, um, I mean, I was always been kind of like fascinated with the sort of like this, the philosophy of the mind and the kind of like consciousness studies. I remember like uh, during my MFA thesis defense, I had like a stack of books that kind of inspired my um, like sort of like my directions that my writing was going in. I think one of them was called um, something like the, the quantum physics of <laughs> the quantum physics of our mind or the quantum physics of the afterlife. And um, so I, I've always kind of been sort of, you know, interested in like what happens to us when we pass, what happens to our consciousness, um, what's the nature of memory on, you know, spiritual and, and, and sort of scientific levels and so I knew that I wanted to kind of unpack this for, for this novel at some point. Um, oddly, the inspiration for this came from a Twilight Zone episode. Um, I think it was called Those Toys. Mm. And um, essentially, you know, we don't know that there are toys at first, but they're all, there's like a, a soldier, there's a cowboy, there's a ballerina, and they're all trapped in this space that ends up being kind of this toy box. And they're all trying to get out. And like for them, this is basically their world and they're mm-hmm. just kind of trying to climb up. And I was like, that's kind of a cool idea. But like, what, what if I kind of took that and essentially made this into kind of like this infinite limbo, this like void. And what if, um, you know, this void was essentially a place where our memories exist, where consciousness exists and where we could come together in a kind of community and actually literally step into each other's lives. Like what would that do to our ability to like understand each other on a human level and sort of like let our differences fade away. And there's a line in that chapter that sort of nods at this, like, you know, would we actually be able to collaborate and work together if we were able to actually see each other? and so, you know, I kind of ran with a lot of these ideas and kind of created this kind of like void space. And I was tr- trying to figure out like what these memories would look like, how they, pre- how they would present themselves. And um, during a trip to Japan, I came across this art installation um, called Wonder Moments. And if you, go- if you Google Wonder Moments Osaka, you'll probably come up with the image. And um, the installation is basically just this orb in a dark room that is projecting like wildflowers and sea life and kind of just, you know, it's kind of like a, if, if it wasn't full with kids, I would just like to zone out there and like stare and stare at these like images projected on this orb. But, you know, that was kind of like an aha moment for me. It was like, that, that's my vehicle. That's what I want. That's, that's, that's what I want the memories to be. And I want to walk inside this orb and I want the memories to replay. 
and uh, I want this void to be filled with these orbs. Um, and so there's there so like that that art installation, that Twilight Zone episode, and just I think a lot of my kind of like previous readings on like consciousness studies, I think for, informed that chapter. Mm. Boy, that one Twilight Zone episode, I feel like has a lot to answer for. I feel mm -hmm. like a, it, it, yeah, it has found its tendrils in a lot of spaces. I mm -hmm. think there's even a Felicity episode where. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that chapter has something in common with the author that you brought for me, um, mm -hmm. Brenda Painato, oh, The God. Rock Eaters. You know, because both of both you and Brenda have this matter-of-fact fabulism mm -hmm. where the sentence that you're saying is crazy but the way that you just say it in plain language and just move on like you get that right mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> makes you think like oh right i should just assume that that's the normal reality and and move on from there and she does that over and over in this and it was a really interesting this is the rock eaters. Um, it was an incredible story collection. Uh, mm -hmm. What what made you suggest it to me? Well, I've been a long I'm a, I've been a long time fan of of Brenda. Um, you know, before she published this, just she's been publishing like a machine over the last several years. And I think she's one of those rare writers who is you know at home in the Pushcart anthology and the o. Henry anthology, but also publishes in Tor and has been selected for the best American science fiction and fantasy, which I think that anthology does a pretty good job of culling from both literary and genre journals anyway. But Brenda's is very much at home, I think, in both camps and does a good job of blending her speculative interests, um, you know, in terms of exploring very important topical issues of identity, of race and class and, um, in this case, kind of issues of immigration and borders. Um, there's a question in the back of the book that really kind of think, you know, runs through every story. What does it mean to be other? What does it mean to be love in a world determined to keep us apart? And almost every story, whether she's, you know, using a technological conceit, like a science fictional conceit, or something that's more fantastical, like angels, like hanging out on rooftops. Um, and giving us fortune or not, depending on depending on whether or not you have a good angel or a shitty angel. <laughs> um, you know, like it, it really kind of answers these quests, or maybe not answers. I think it doesn't. It, it it explores questions of of race and class and immigration, um, and and being other. But I, what I love about these stories is it doesn't really hit you over the head with. The, this I'm using this as a lens to unpack what this means about being, you know, Latinx or about, you know, the immigrant experience. I think what's actually happening here that's way more powerful is that Brenda is creating um, a space of possibility, a liminal space um, where the speculative, where reality, where the absurd kind of play together. Uh, where history, where our ancestors, um, where younger generations can actually enter into dialogues about very, very difficult questions. And I think sometimes those questions aren't answered. And what's more powerful is that we're seeing the dialogue in real time. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, we're seeing just essentially the fabric of what it means to be other versus leaving with, I think, a concrete lesson. Mm. 
Mm -hmm. Even with all of that, mm -hmm. these are not didactic. They're not, they're mm -hmm. very entertaining. They move really fast. Mm -hmm. There's, there's even amongst some true atrocities, there's a lot of humor. Oh, for sure. Yeah. The first chapter, as I said, you know, like is, is the, as the angel chapter mm -hmm. and, you know, like it never really sort of says it outright, but there, there's this, he's very good at being subtle, but at sometimes there are these lines that kind of like peel back the curtain a little bit, but then we move on very quickly from, from, you know, from the message. Um, but just having, you know, a, a good angel or a shitty angel, you know, in your neighborhood, it just says so much about, well, what are the circumstances that you're given? You know, like what kind of privileges do you have just kind of, you know, based on, you know, how other people perceive you, the color of your skin, like how we're navigating the world. Right. I re I mean, so many of these stories, that that one included, are are sort of like literal interpretations of mm. sayings. It's like, ah, the right. angels were on your side for that one. And right. then she was yeah. like, wait a minute. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm gonna explore what that means. Mm -hmm. Or um, you know, the the I was really touched by the the rock. The um mm. the story about where if you if you have a sorrow a, a rock will form mm -hmm. and you have mm -hmm. to leave it by the lake in this one community, or even that that the the title story is about um like the next generation becoming unattached to the where they came from and it's literally about them like being able to fly. Mm -hmm. So I feel like she she takes that like literal interpretation of a metaphor and then just runs with it. Exactly. I think another favorite of mine was um, in the middle of the book is the true love game. Mm -hmm. And you know, you have these children like existing in this house that's filled with basically the ghosts of their ancestors. You can't really speak to them. Like they're chanting, they can sing. And what I love about these games that these children play is that they're, they're playing these games, but they're also surrounded by a world that is already working against them. Mm -hmm. And they're very aware of this, even within the bounds of their games. Like, oh, I can't marry this person. Like, <laughs> you know, like they're, they're very like realistic and in some ways like defeatist about the future. And there's this one line that kind of like is a little bit more on the nose, but again, you know, she moves beyond it very quickly. The grandparents, the ghosts know what will happen to him without the chain that he will be caught in an internal struggle for everything and nothing that he wants. I just love that line. And I love that, you know, in that particular chapter, they kind of want, you know, their grandson to join them <laughs> in, in the afterlife, to become one of them, to become like a basement ghost mm -hmm. because they know how difficult his life is going to be. Right. What makes for a successful short story to you? You work at a magazine um, and you, of course, write them as well. What, what, what does it need to do to really sing for you? I think for me, um, a short story needs to really kind of walk the balancing act between um, creating intrigue right away and also not messing with the readers right away. So it's a balance between like providing a narrative compass and a, and a promise, you know, why am I reading the story? Why I'm going to spend the next half an hour reading this, but also providing enough mystery and intrigue, whether that's fantasy or science fiction or something that's more grounded on our real world. 
Um, and oftentimes I see, I think, early drafts of stories um, or student stories that are doing too much of one or the other, where it's all mystery and all intrigue, and I'm getting lost in that. Mm -hmm. Or it's, it's, you know, it's the other where, um, you know, it's, it's maybe a little bit too heavy handed and they're sharing all of their cards in one go. Right. I feel like in, in this collection, I was sort of, I would be surprised sometimes when the, um, fabulous or, or science fiction or whatever, um, thing would come in because it was so it was always um under the radar and and mm -hmm. little like she was really she was she's so good at being understated mm -hmm. um and but it it's funny to say that because mm -hmm. understated it's all stated it's all you know it's all got the same weight i don't know it, it's interesting that we keep bringing up that word for her but it's just like but it's not it's something else too and i think part of it's just the confidence that she writes you know with like that la the, the last chapter particularly there's just like so many genres that she's playing with like it's like it starts off it's it's, it's this kind of science fiction there's this like radio there's this like x-ray surveillance van that's like leaking radiation mm -hmm. but then all of a sudden like what does this radiation do it's basically creating like in latinx fantastic four <laughs> you know <laughs> and and there's this guy who with like these un unbelievably long limbs that can serve as you know like essentially a scout that can like cross borders and um, protect, you know, sort of protect the others. Um, and it never really, it, it, it's at once absurdist, but at the same time, completely believable within the bounds of the story. Right. I never wanted to like put a, put the story down because I'm like, well, that's just, you've moved right. beyond because mm. I was always felt like she had like engraved my invitation pretty well. Right. But I, I feel like the story, um, I don't know if I'm going to be pronouncing this right, Yiza, mm -hmm. where there is no extra sci-fi or genre element. It's, mm -hmm. it's just kids in a high school at, with tennis. And like that is just, the, it's, it's at the same level and it's pitched the same way as the other ones, mm -hmm. as like the kite maker for aliens. Right. <laughs> Right. Um, which I think was my favorite story. I think the kite oh, maker yeah. with, with one of the greatest first lines of a short story I've heard in a long time, you haven't truly seen a kite fly until you've seen an alien fly one, mm -hmm. which is just like, <laughs> <laughs> whoa. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're going to read that story after reading that first line. Like that pulls you in for sure. Yeah. Very. I mean, there's a little bit of that George Saunders quality. Mm -hmm. He's, yeah. he's very good at that too. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, she's often doing him one better, which is always mm -hmm. exciting to read. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I think she's so good at making sort of the unfamiliar, and in this case, you know, the alien seem human, mm -hmm. you know, that, and, you know, that's something that I try to do, like in my own work, or at least strive to do is like, how can we actually better understand humanity by looking at it through non-human eyes? Mm -hmm. um, and I think maybe that's just kind of the charge of fabulism and some science fiction. Um, yeah. yeah. and. I the other thing that I was thinking too is is in the same way, way of like Kelly Link. Um, mm -hmm. You're off. I'm often thinking like this could have been a novel. Like right. you could have used this whole thing and start to like, and I and I admire that that you can that this that that she is so confident mm -hmm. 
in her imagination that she can just be like, I'll just leave that one. I'm, I'm going to have another one tomorrow. So right. <laughs> I can just move on from this entire world cast system, you know, details and everything that she's mm-hmm. just like, yeah, it's 30 pages. I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> it's impressive. Yeah, it is. It is. And I think, you know, I, I, I just wish that more readers out there kind of appreciated that. Um, you know, as like, and, and instead of saying, well, it should have been a novel or, you know, like I couldn't get into it because I wanted more of that story and not this other story, um, you know, and, and why can't people kind of just, you know, enjoy that experience for what it is and then move on to another experience? Um, right. Well, in means. some ways it is like the highest yeah. compliment you can right. say, like I wanted yeah. more. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it still results in like a two-star review, (laughs) which is the frustrating part. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like you could probably, there could be a reading list where it's like, if you like this uh, story from the Rock Eaters, here's Mm -hmm. the novel. Like, um, I was thinking about the the, um, story where they're losing limbs and it reminded me of um, Memory Police by Yoko Ogawa. Oh, yeah. Which is an incredible novel. And she... (laughs) And, you know, in The Rock Eaters, Mm -hmm. it's like six pages, but Mm -hmm. it's dealing with so many of the same themes that she does there. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you putting this in my hands. I I don't know why I hadn't quite heard of, I mean, she deserves to be up in in these conversations with these other story masters. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm so glad you recommended it to me because it's it's a really special collection. And I think, you know, it moves us really nicely into what is the recommendations portion of the podcast. Uh, do you want to recommend some things to the good listeners? Would you like yeah. me to go first? Uh, why don't you go first? I've, I'm trying to decide if, between a couple things here. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm in the middle of a bunch of books right now that I think are, are going to end really wonderfully, but I can't quite recommend them yet. So I am going to recommend a TV show mm-hmm. and a album. Uh, and I'm watching Severance, Uh-oh. which is not related to the Lingmon novel. Yeah, yeah. just started watching that. Which is, thank goodness, because mm-hmm. I feel like Station Eleven, the TV show, I just mm-hmm. don't know what... I don't think it would have the room to breathe if Severance came out right now. But Severance, the Adam Scott television show, is like catnip for anybody who likes sci-fi. There's, it's, it's great sort of, it's a great sci-fi premise, and it feels sort of Kafka-esque and strange as you're following this guy who is um, underwent a procedure that he forgets his outside life when he's at work. And he forgets his at work life when he's at home. Of course, like any sort of story could be told from that. They're telling this particular one and it's very, uh, very enjoyable. And I really, really, really need to know what the heck they're doing on their, those computers. I don't know if you're, how close you're watching it yet, but there's numbers that are scary and I want to know way more about it. Um, totally loving it. Wonderful. And the other recommendation that I have. I very rarely recommend music on here, but I haven't flipped for an album like this in a really, really long time. I don't know how I missed this band Jellyfish. They were in the 90s, and I just 
it seems like my type of thing. It's power pop. It's really wonderful. Somehow didn't hear of it until last week. And um, I listened to and can't stop listening to their 1993 masterpiece, Spilt Milk. And so it's kind of like if you are interested um, and don't know who they are, it, the, the sound is sort of Beach Boys and Super Tramp meets 90s grunge and all the hooks you can ever want and incredible harmonies, just amazing. I haven't flipped for an album like this in forever and it's so fun. I feel like a, I'm back in high school, like scribbling <laughs> down lyrics and stuff. Um, it's just, uh, it, it really is just like, I can't believe that I didn't hear this band. That's awesome. Um, yeah, it's, I wish I could listen to music like I listened to music in high school. Yes. Or even college. I feel, I feel like it just, you know, it's, it's it hasn't been the same since like the early 2000s for me. Um, no, but, me uh, but this uh, is making me feel like that. So <laughs> if, I'm hoping by recommending it to others that maybe you can have some sort yeah. of a similar um, experience that I did. Anyway, so what do you recommend? I'm going to recommend a book and a TV show. Okay. Uh, the TV show is Servant, which is um, produced by M. Night Shyamalan. Um, and it revolves, it stars Lauren Ambrose, who was in Six Feet Under, and also Rupert Grint. Um, hmm. And it revolves around this woman who um, loses her child, um, her, her, her infant, um, like she's, she, she forgets him in, in a car, and it's a very hot day. And, and um, they hire a nanny who comes from kind of this mysterious cultish background and um their baby is mysteriously replaced mm. and um i don't want to give too much away but but like a lot of the series kind of follows like is this the baby somehow or is it a replacement and what's the deal with this this servant their their nanny who seems to be protective of them in a really creepy way um and and her and this cult that seems to kind of want her back. Um, it's so well done. I feel like for a long time, like after the sixth sense, you know, um, I'm like, I I, can't, I just can't M Night. You know, like I, I keep <laughs> I keep watching his movies. And it's like, man, I I want to I want to go back to kind of what you did before, but you're just so damn heavy handed, you know. But with this, I, but maybe like the perfect medium for M. Night Shyamalan is, is television because I am loving this and the tension that you kind of felt like with something like the sixth sense in kind of like the first half of that, first half of that film is like running throughout, you know, like seasons. Um, so I am, I'm really liking that show. That's, uh, um, that's also an Apple plus. Apple plus. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, you know, if you were thinking about, trying a trial for apple plus right. you can get caught up on severance exactly and servant yeah. only right. se shows it's great right <laughs> um and then yeah obviously ted lasso's there if you need to make yourself feel better after those shows <laughs> um and then the book um I, i've read things since then but i keep returning to this one is reprieve by james han matson um and it's kind of like a mashup between horror and and literary it takes place partly in a full contact haunted house where murder takes place. And the, and we know the murder takes place at the outset of the novel. And we kind of weave through time following these different characters who were all present at the murder um, and kind of discover how they're all connected to each other and how they're complicit uh, in this atrocity. Um, and it's, you know, kind of 
dives into issues of class and sexuality and toxic masculinity and racism. Um, it's really, 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 really well done. I, re I, I haven't read anything quite like it in terms of this mashup of, of horror and kind of like psychological horror, really, and um, kind of like a literary character study. Wow. That keeps getting recommended to me. I yeah. need to, I think it's time. It's time to finally yeah. do it, mm -hmm. take the leap. Yeah, so good. Well, I have two more recommendations for our listeners of, uh, of this podcast. Number one, if you haven't yet, go and buy How High We Go in the Dark. It is, it will, it is just one of the best books I've read in a really long time. And I completely flipped for it. And I feel like anybody who listens to the show with any regularity, um, I feel like you're going to flip for it too. And then the other recommendation that I have is it just feels so good to go on iTunes and rate this show five stars and give it a great review. I know how awesome that'll feel for all of you because I do it for all of the podcasts I listen to. And it's nice to help them out because beyond you know, giving me money on patreon.com slash smdb, it's the free thing you can do and it really helps the show out. Sequoia, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was a pleasure to talk with you and I, absolutely love your novel so thank you for giving me that thank you so much for the conversation had a lot of fun